Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Joining me today is Lincoln Project Senior Advisor and host of LPTV's The Breakdown, Tara Setmayer. Tara, thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure. Also joining me today is Lincoln Project co-founder, author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, and co-host of LPTV's The Breakdown, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for coming. Hey, Reed. Hey, Tara. Great to be here. So today I want to talk about a couple things. I want to get to what should still be top of mind for so many of us who worry about American democracy, which is the events of January 6th, the insurrection, the sacking of the Capitol, and now how Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, are wrestling with how to contend with that. But first, I want to talk about what is really making some news in Washington and probably state capitals and probably corporate headquarters around the country, is that a number of very large companies who, in the wake of January 6th, said that they would no longer give to members of Congress who had voted against certifying the electoral vote count on January 6th, have now quietly started breaking that pledge and giving money not only to members of Congress, but really through backdoor and sub rosa ways, which is giving to the committees, whether or not it's the Republican Study Committee, which is a group of very conservative members on the Hill, the National Republican Congressional Committee, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and thinking nobody would figure it out. Now, the thing about all of these organizations is that they are either led by or filled with members of both the House and Senate who have planted themselves firmly in this sedition caucus, the Stop the Steal caucus, the Let Me Go to Mar-a-Lago and Bend the Knee to Trump caucus. And so, Rick, from your perspective, like, should we be surprised by this? You know, Reed, nothing surprises me anymore about how low the former Republican Party, now the Trump Party, has sunk. And nothing surprises me about corporate America doing this. Folks, let's be really direct about something. We've been a little bit off the air for the last two months. And right before we kind of went off the air, we had committed to bringing a massive campaign of pressure against corporate America if they were going to donate to people who supported overthrowing our democracy and disenfranchising tens of millions of African-American votes. That's it. And the fact that they've had a month or so to sneak around in the dark and whisper quietly in the dark, and these are big companies and these are big corporate enterprises advised by very expensive lobbying firms in D.C. and who have very expensive lobbyists working for them in-house. So I'm not shocked that they're trying to do it. I am shocked that they don't understand that we see them. We understand this is happening. We know what's coming. And I think it is important for the Lincoln Project to call them out for it. So, Tara, you know, as someone who is a a veteran of Capitol Hill, you know, these are big names, AT&T, Cigna, Intel, trillion dollar companies, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars, tens of thousands of employees, millions of customers. Generally speaking, no one likes their health insurance company or their cell phone carrier. So nobody gets up in the morning, turns their phone on, go, thank God I've got AT&T. Right, or their cable. (laughs) And my guess is if you have to pull a Cigna card out of your wallet, it's probably not happily doing so. But leaning back on your, again, experience there, 
what are the members saying to these companies to try and rattle them to get them to sort of open up the coffers again? Well, it's your typical, you need us to make sure that overregulation doesn't happen by the Democrats. You know, they control everything. We're your only bulwark against raising taxes. And, you know, these relationships are well established, as you guys know. Oftentimes, the lobbyists are former Hill staffers. So they know these members very well. They've had dinners with them at the Capitol Hill Club and they go to receptions. And, you know, these are longstanding relationships. So they like to go back to the way things were, the status quo. It's how Washington's worked for decades and decades. Anytime you start messing with people's money, people get nervous because that's how you get access. I remember when I was on Capitol Hill, it was at the time when they got rid of earmarks where you could no longer put in the, quote, pork barrel spending into spending bills. Then they thought that that was going to be the way to kind of get the money out of politics and undue influence into members. We all know that there was ways to get around that. That didn't stop lobbying. It just didn't call them earmarks anymore. And this is the same thing. You know, companies get worried that their bottom line will be impacted by whoever's in power. And Republicans have always been the party that promises that they're not going to overregulate. I mean, there's some validity to some of those things but not enough to defend these big companies giving money to members of Congress who literally supported a violent insurrection (laughs) against our government that wanted to overturn a free and fair election. It doesn't get any more fundamentally traitorous, in my opinion, than that. We cannot allow them to just scoot by and say, well, that was just one blip. You know, the rest of the stuff they did was good. We were kidding. (laughs) Yeah, you know, everybody makes a mistake. We'll give them a mulligan. No, you don't get a mulligan when you do things that hurt the democracy and kill people. It sounds to me like this really comes down to, on both sides of this equation, both on the corporate side and on the political side, power and money. And as I think we noted on a previous episode, the U.S. Chamber, who has also started backing off its cancellation, so to speak, of members who'd voted against Joe Biden's taking office, said that they were not going to judge members by one vote. It was going to be the totality of their career, what they'd done currently, what they were likely to do in the future. I think we take a fundamentally different view of this, which is you had one chance and they all got it wrong. It doesn't matter what your ledger said before. This is the defining mark on your career and corporations should see it. So let me ask you this, because these companies, remember AT&T was split off into however many things years ago, you know, the gravitational pull of these things pulls them back together. They work in all 50 states. You know, the communications workers of America have, you know, like 150,000 union employees, bargain for employees at AT AT&T. It's not just a federal thing, right? They're lobbyists or check delivery systems at every state capital in the country. And so these people, AT&T, just to use them as an example, wields enormous authority, right? They spent $11.5 million on lobbying just in D.C. last year. So if they are so essential to so many people's lives, whether or not that's on the customer side or the employee side, why are they so determined to give $5,000 out of their PAC funds to these guys who are so clearly bad actors? I mean, you know, the thing I've always found about politicians who go to jail for bribery, it's never for like $17 million, right? It's for like 8500 bucks and like right. Lakers tickets right. or something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like they always get in trouble <laughs> for very small amounts of money. But if it's $5,000, like let's say to 20 guys, it's 100000 bucks. Is it the fact that it's just like this is the canary in the coal mine? Why does this, relatively speaking, in political terms, small amount of money have such a large effect on these folks? I think, as Tara pointed out, it's kind of the culture of Washington, Reed. They hire former Hill staffers. They hire former members. 
And you know, look at AT&T, our old friend, Ed Gillespie is government affairs at AT&T now. And he's got a million other Republican friends who were calling him up and saying, Hey, Ed, listen, you know, I know I'm on the bad list, but you know, you got to help me out here. Cause you know, it's going to be an off year election. We may win the house back and you know, you want to be right with me when that happens, man. You got to make sure your people know you're going to be right with me. Some of it is just that venal and direct and ugly. And some of it has a very blunt edge on it. And I think that there is also a sense among many Republicans that the Democrats will overshoot, they will overreach, they will do something dumb, and they're not going to be able to go after Biden. They realize that Biden right now, his numbers are very high. So they're going to try to go after Nancy Pelosi or the squad or turn this into the same old culture war which is dull and stupid, but it works for them in a lot of different levels over the years, which that's a longer discussion. But there's a math problem in the heads of a lot of donors right now, of lobbyists, where they're thinking, ah, man, I may not like these guys, but what if it's Speaker McCarthy again? What if it's, God forbid, Mitch McConnell as the majority leader again? What do I do then? If I didn't give, they're going to screw me. That's right. You know? Because then they become committee chairman again, and they're the ones who write the laws and control the regulations when you have a new presidency. So it's really all about that. And, you know, Ed Gillespie is a good example, Rick, of what I was talking about as far as relationships. Ed Gillespie is a longtime Washington operative. I was his intern in 1996. There you go. And <laughs> Reed, you and I are about the same age. Mm-hmm. And um, in 96, that's when Republicans were riding high. We controlled the Congress for the first time in 40 years. You know, we had Bill Clinton, but it was a rallying point for Republicans. They had an extra pep in their step with Newt Gingrich and Dick Armey and the hammer over there, delay. So, you know, we were getting things done in Congress. And then you had the RNC. I think Haley Barber was the chairman. Haley was there. Yeah. yeah, who was a very effective chairman. And, you know, uh, Democrats feared our ground game. And like those kinds of things, that kind of goodwill in the party establishment over years and years, you have a lot of relationships. Didn't Ed Gillespie run in Virginia? Unsuccessfully, though. Yeah, Um, against Northam. Yeah, for governor. He was the chairman of the RNC at one point. I mean, you think he doesn't have a lot of influence with members of Congress? Some of those members probably worked with him. Well, he was chair of the Republican State Legislative Committee, RSLC. So a, pro- a lot of them probably knew him from when they were legislators before go. they became members of Congress. So those people cannot underestimate the power of personal relationships in politics. But let me ask you this, because regulation, right? That's the bugaboo of industries in the United States. But like, what is it that they're afraid that like Republicans are going to do? Because they're not going to slap more regulations on these people. So is it really not... What are they going to do to us? But what won't they give us that we want? Right. Does that make sense? And maybe I'm being inartful. But the idea is not that I'm afraid they'll do something bad to me, but they won't give me all of the different candy that I'm asking for, you know, Congress in and Congress out. They won't give me that extra semicolon in the tax code that makes sure I don't pay any taxes. Yeah, that stuff makes a difference. You know, a point zero one percentage difference in a tax rate could be hundreds of millions of dollars for these major corporations or, you know, millions of dollars for their CEOs and their golden parachutes. You know what I mean? So when the negotiations between, you know, dropping the corporate tax rate from 39% down to 20% or whatever it was, I could be mixing those up. I think that's capital gains, but whatever. But you know what I mean? Like when they're, when they're dropping those tax rates and you have to negotiate with the other side, that one or two percentage points in those tax rates make a huge difference in corporation bottom line. So yeah, those things make a difference. But Rick, haven't we left out one 
I would hope would be a central part of the equation, which is like actual Americans? Well, you know, that is the dirty little secret of American politics is once in a while, people speak out with a number of voices at a level that's loud enough and sharp enough and clear enough so that even the sound of those sweet, sweet checks being stacked on the table is overcome. And it doesn't happen all the time and it doesn't happen consistently. But I will say this, there are a lot of Americans who looked at what happened on January 6th and don't see it as just hijinks by a bunch of Trump supporters. They looked at it for the seriousness that it should have been looked at. They looked at it as an immediate proximate threat to our republic and to American democracy. And they haven't forgotten about it. They haven't walked away from it. They haven't said, eh, no big deal. There are a lot of Republicans who do not understand, I think, at this point, the depth to which they have been compromised by not only their vote to overturn the election and to disenfranchise tens of millions of African Americans, but also by their clear alliance with the people who were kicking those doors down and beating those cops on the 6th. It's going to have a political repercussion, and I think it will have a repercussion where it's going to be harder for Republicans to go into a town hall Zoom as we do in this day and age and sort of nod and wink and go, well, I'm not one of those Republicans. Well, if you're one of the 147, you are. If you didn't speak up and say, I'm not going to vote to disenfranchise these folks and to overturn an election to hold Trump in power, if you didn't speak out against it, you are part of that. And I, I think we have a lot of problems to face going forward many of which are related to COVID, not really as political as all that. But the central political problem is, are we going to be a republic where every vote is counted and where we believe that the right to vote was a hard-earned, hard-won set of sacrifices in this country meant to correct some of our original sins as a nation? Well, if you want to make America look like it did in 1964 or 1864 or 1764, you're in for a hell of a hard ride. Tara, before we move on to our next topic, there were some companies that actually said, you know, we're not going to give to anybody for a while. And, you know, generally speaking, these big companies give about an equal amount to everybody, right? So that they're sort of covering their bases. So again, leaning back on your experience on the Hill, do you think there's some pressure from Democrats as well? It said, hey, come on, you know, from those companies who said we're not going to do any of this to get the spigots going as well? Um, Possibly because they can say, hey, we're the ones that actually are on the right side of democracy and we're in power now. So why are you punishing us? We didn't do it. You know, you can give us your money. We're the ones that are on your side here. But fighting for political money is a game that will never end as long as, you know, things aren't completely publicly financed in the way the federal election system is set up. You're always going to have this dynamic. But I think it's important that we give credit, at least, to some of the companies who said that, you know, they weren't going to do this anymore and just have completely suspended their packs, like Charles Schwab. Like, they completely dissolved their pack and said, we're not giving to anyone. And the $150,000 that they had in their pack left over, they donated it to charity. Good. I think that's a much better use of that money at this point right now. Other companies like McDonald's, General Motors, BAE, they've suspended all political donations to your point where they're not giving to anybody. And these members, I'd rather them not give to anyone than feel like, well, if we give to one, we have to give to the other and try to make excuses like some of the others who are trying to thread the needle. At least they said we're staying out of it. Well, as they say in Jurassic Park, if life finds a way in politics, money finds a way. So. It will. Oh, yes. It will. <laughs> but if it does, groups like ours and others are here to point that out. So if they want to do that, then be prepared for the public to know. That's the difference now. See, these companies were able to get away with this before because most people were not paying attention. 
but people are paying attention now. And they have groups like the Lincoln Project that are out here making sure people pay attention, leveraging our reach for good. So people have a choice. And that's how our democracy works. That's how a free market works. Let the free market decide. We're just putting out the information. Well, free market for me, but not for thee, I guess, in some regard. <laughs> so yeah. let me switch gears. So we've talked about it, you know, in the context of this part of the conversation. January 6th is this defining moment. Since that day, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been attempting to form a commission to really study what happened on that day, who was responsible, who should have acted, who didn't act. Republicans obviously are not in favor of this. So now we have a stalemate in Washington over a major issue that is a lot bigger than just what happened on January 6th, as big as that was. And so, Rob, why don't we play what Roy Blunt, chair of the Senate Rules Committee, said about this this past Sunday? I'm not opposed to a commission, but uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi has never suggested after her first suggestion that it would be overwhelmingly controlled by one side, that there'd be a, a bipartisan commission. I'd also think that this is a case where in terms of the security of the Capitol, whether the police board uh, is uh, functioning or not, not the Capitol Police, but the board that, in my opinion, got in the way of decisions that need to be made uh, that day, we know those facts. And I think the Congress itself has the capacity here to move forward. That doesn't mean I'm opposed to a commission, but frankly, I would believe that the commission would probably be a reason to wait and not do the things that we know we need to do right now. So, first of all, what, what, what? was exactly. that English? <laughs> so Roy Blunt from Missouri is retiring. He'll he'll leave office in January of 2023. Mm -hmm. But Capitol Hill will miss that sort of singular doublespeak, for lack of a better way to put it. <laughs> I want these things, but I don't really want these things. But we know how to do these things, but we shouldn't do these things. Tara, my opinion on this is that Republicans don't want this for obvious reasons, which is it looks terrible for them. Because so many of their members, certainly in the House and also in the U.S. Senate, were, you know, in some ways, small or large responsible for this. You know, a true commission is going to figure out, OK, who was given tours to some of these people on That's January correct. 5th, whose cell phones were pinging. I mean, you saw and I think it was a committee hearing last month. Josh Hawley and Mike Lee were both clearly terrified that the FBI and the Justice Department were going to find something in their cell phone signals. <laughs> right, right. They were hiding behind Fourth Amendment civil liberty arguments about that, which don't really apply in this case. Right. And then on the Democratic side of the aisle, my fear is that if the Donald Trump era part one, and let's hope it's the only part, was a deviation from the national mean politically, that the establishment wants to get back to that mean as quickly as it possibly can. That includes Democratic leadership who want to focus on the COVID relief bill that they just got done. Now they're talking about infrastructure and everything else. And so there's a part of me that really worries, too, that they don't want to have to confront this because it means they're actually going to have to do something about it. It's twofold. First of all, Roy Blunt is hiding behind a weak process argument. Just substitute what he said with 9-11. Imagine if that was the argument around delaying the formation of the 9-11 commission. No one would stand for it. OK, the Republicans would be apoplectic about this and say, you know, how dare you? We can chew gum and walk at the same time. And that's nonsense. We need to get to the bottom of this. Americans died. There were terrorists. Yeah, well, law enforcement officers died. These people were domestic terrorists that tried to overthrow our government. I'm sorry. That's pretty effing important. So this nonsense about 
it will delay any um you know necessary changes we need to do congress can do it on their own and congress hasn't been able to pass an actual budget in like a decade they do not function well so this nonsense that just leave it to congress we can handle it they can't handle basic governing as it is now so we're not going to leave this up to you that's why we have these types of commissions so it's a bunch of bs and you're right reed democrats are like look we don't really want to go through this either because it doesn't really impact everyday americans you know everyday americans are suffering we have covid the economy we want the easy political wins that we can put up those points on the board we've got midterms coming up not that far away and the margins in the house are uncomfortably close for them so they can't afford to lose those things they don't want to argue over the january 6th insurrection because it doesn't hit them in their pockets you know it's not a kitchen table issue so i think that they're wrong about that frankly i think democrats are miscalculating by not continuing to go back to the fact that one major party in this country seems to be okay with sedition and insurrection and that they're okay with this country moving away from democracy i think they're making a mistake there's a way you can always work that in they should always work it in not saying we have to argue like the constitution and referring back to the civil war and those kinds of things that people like us cite all the time because <laughs> we're nerds yeah history nerds that's okay that's what we're here for you know what i mean and we make it fun though like to the average american who actually has a life outside of politics when you start to frame it that way because that's what we do here at the lincoln project we take these things we put them in the proper context so it's not boring and your eyes glaze over we put it in the context so that you you understand why you should care today if we don't have our representative democracy you know if we don't have our constitutional republic nothing else matters so I think Democrats need not to play that down. And Republicans really need to just shut up because they're a bunch of hypocrites and apparently anti-democracy, illiberal party that has no interest in living up to the party's founding. I mean, as we talked about previously, with culture wars have electoral outcomes, the deep dive into this, Rick, would have electoral outcomes, too. You know, for all of the appearance of support for the Paul Gosars and Louis Gohmerts of the world, if it comes out publicly that they, you know, were leading these people around the halls of the Capitol and showing them where Speaker Pelosi's office was. My guess is they're voters. In a place like East Texas, I think those folks consider themselves pretty patriotic. I think that's right, Reid. I think it would be one of those things where, like Hemingway talked about bankruptcy, they would lose support slowly and then all at once. Because the idea that some of these members have a role to play and the reason, again, why Cruz and Hawley were so, so interested in what happened with the cell phone data I think we'll come down to the fact that you're going to see some of these members in the House and maybe some in the Senate, too. We're in contact with people at the White House. We're in contact with the Roger Stone and the Stop the Steal people. We're in contact with the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And if you find that out, it's a lot different than just saying, oh, I disagree about X or Y. Then it becomes a much darker problem for those folks. Yeah, and we're certainly going to have plenty of those. Yeah, like the Ron Johnsons of the world that say those were just patriotic Americans and I wasn't afraid of them. And yeah, and you find out that they hosted these people in their offices or they've had contact with them or the organizers. That whole they were just patriotic Americans who were upset narrative goes right out the window. It goes out the window because you have concrete evidence that these members of Congress were entertaining these insurrectionists and it, it becomes a lot more difficult to defend that. 
There's that video on January 6th of Officer Goodman intercepting Senator Mitt Romney and pointing him out of the way of these folks who were on the march and Romney and his aide take off. My guess is if you replaced Romney with Ron Johnson, not only would he have run away, but he would have lit his hair on fire and screamed as he tried to run away from the mob. Right. This guy's no hero. He has no courage in his body. Oh, um, God, no. He says that now because he's safe. First of all, most of those folks would not have known who Ron Johnson was if they saw him. And if they had caught him, God knows what would have happened to him. But now because he's, you know, back behind his desk, he's spewing out his insane rantings that started last year, you know, as a mouthpiece in the U.S. for Vladimir Putin. And now he's just decided to be, you know, full on chairman and chief executive officer of this Senate Republican racist caucus. You know, I like to say that there's a race between Ron Johnson and Marco Rubio, who should be the worst U.S. senator. But I think Johnson has taken over a clear lead here. Well, I mean, you've got Holly and Cruz that are well, close second. <laughs> sure, but they're, they're not up. So, like, you know, that's we're stuck with them for a couple of years. Oh, that's true. You mean running for reelection? Yeah, 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 yeah. But let me ask you this before we move away from the events of January 6th. I do want to talk about one last thing. On 60 Minutes this weekend, former Washington, D.C. U.S. attorney Michael Sherwin described what he thought Donald Trump's criminal liability might be. It's unequivocal that Trump was the magnet that brought the people to D.C. on the 6th. Now the question is, is he criminally culpable for everything that happened during the siege, during the breach? What I can tell you is this, based upon, again, what we see in the public record and what we see in public statements in court, we have plenty of people. We have soccer moms from Ohio that were arrested saying, well, I did this because my president said I had to take back our house. That moves the needle towards that direction. Maybe the president is culpable for those actions. Tara, what do you think about that? I think that this is a very fascinating potential legal problem for Donald Trump. I mean, there is no shortage of legally dubious, questionable behavior by Donald Trump, not only in his whole career, but while he was president. I mean, it runs the gamut, right? But this here is something that I think a lot of people are wondering, well, we all know that he incited this. We all know that these people, they're saying so in court documents, right? A lot of them who are, who've gotten arrested said, well, my president told me so. So how can you go after him? First of all, this coming from the former interim U.S. attorney for D.C., Michael Sherwin, lends a lot of credence to the actual legal culpability possibilities here because this guy isn't a slouch. And when you're the D.C. U.S. attorney, I mean, this is one of the most active circuits for U.S. attorneys. You know, it's not exactly Boise, Idaho. No offense to Boise, but there's not a lot going on there compared to what's happening here in Washington, the kinds of cases that they get, like federal cases. And he not only was the interim U.S. attorney. He was a Trump appointee. He stepped in because there was a whole disaster here in D.C. with it was a lot of politics with who they wanted to be the U.S. attorney, but whatever. But he was actually there that day. He got dressed, dressed in civilian clothes. He went to the rally, Trump's rally, to observe what these people looked like, what the demeanor was, what was going on. He actually walked with them up to the Capitol. And he discusses this in detail in his 60 Minutes interview. I encourage people to watch it if they haven't already, where he talks about how he saw how there were people that were clearly dressed in military gear, that seemed trained, that were, you know, moving in tactical movements. He observed this with his own eyes. And so he had a certain amount of zeal 
about getting some of these people arrested and moving forward with their prosecution because he saw the whole thing unfold and said, you know, this is serious. This isn't a joke. They have hundreds of cases. Now he has moved over to uh, another position inside the Department of Justice, but they've laid the foundation to go after a lot of these people, particularly these militia groups, which is another whole set of problems. But back to how Trump could potentially be civilly liable, well, criminally, possibly, probably more difficult because presidents have a certain immunity and it's a little difficult when they're in office. But the idea that we're even hearing this, that seditious conspiracy could be considered against a president of the United States or any sitting official is pretty remarkable. And um, you have Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe out there making a case that there could be civil lawsuits that may be viable against Donald Trump worth following. You have Representative Benny Thompson and Representative Eric Swalwell filing lawsuits against former President Trump in the wake of the insurrection, which, you know, these are legal actions between private citizens now. He's out of office. So who knows? Can plaintiffs go after Trump for damages? Maybe. But whether they're viable or not, I just think the idea of tying Trump up in legal knots is just another way to just make his post-presidency miserable. I mean, David Farenthold over at The Washington Post, who won a Pulitzer Prize for basically taking down Trump's charity, exposing it for the fraud that it was. David Farenthold has continued to follow these things. And he reports that Trump is already facing 29 lawsuits. And some of them are people seeking damages from his actions on the 6th. So you know what? Good. Trump has been a lifelong vexatious litigant where he's tried to use the uh, legal system vexatious to bully people. litigant. Yes. That is a legal term, by the way. That is a legal term. That means someone who abuses the court system to try to clog things up. That's a vexatious litigant. So that's Trump and his thousands and thousands of lawsuits, for, you know, whether they're frivolous or not. And um, I think that it's time that he gets a taste of his own medicine, because when the government comes after you, it's a whole different ballgame. Well, and I would say that just to close the thought, if if you have never and thankfully I was just a spectator, but if you have never seen a U.S. attorney or an assistant U.S. attorney prosecute a case in a federal courtroom, I can promise you, you do not want to be on the other side of those folks. That is they for sure. They are very, very good at what they do. Yep. And they have the entire resource of the federal government at their disposal. So, all right. And with that, um, Rick, where can we find you online? I am on the Twitter machine at the Rick Wilson. More so lately, guys, than I have been in the past few months. So uh, expect to see me around a little bit more, causing a few more problems. All right, great. And Tara, where can we find you? And tell us what's coming up on LPTV this week. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well, at Tara Setmayer. On Instagram, I'm at the Tara Setmayer. And on LPTV, you can find Rick and I together. We are partners in our fight, actually, for democracy on The Breakdown on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m., live streaming across all of Lincoln Project's social media platforms. And this week, we're going to be talking about disinformation. This is something that we've continued to do here at the Lincoln Project and on LPTV, because this is really a dangerous problem. Because most people nowadays, it's really difficult to determine what's true and what's not. And mass information through mass communication is incredibly influential. And there's so much of this misinformation and disinformation out there that our enemies are using. Russia is still involved in this. So we're, we're going to dive into that a little bit this week as well to just continue to educate folks on what to look for and what to be weary of. 
And we're still hammering on the corporate responsibility, voter suppression stuff, because it's still ongoing. This is something that will be a continuing theme for us because there are many states, 43 states and hundreds of bills that look similar to what's happening down in Georgia. So we want to make sure we continue to pay attention to all of that. Well, and along those lines, if you happen to be an HBO subscriber, HBO Max subscriber, the first two episodes of a new documentary series called Q Into the Storm about the foundations of QAnon just dropped Sunday night. I recommend it if you're not going to go to sleep shortly thereafter. It's really a fascinating exploration into how these things start and how quickly they can move uh, long before truth can catch up with them. So, Tara, thanks for joining me today. For everyone, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And for everyone here at The Lincoln Project, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen, See you on the next episode.